In general, a flying ointment is a hallucinogenic ointment said to have been used by witches in the practice of European witchcraft from at least as far back as the early modern period. That's when detailed recipes for these flying ointments were first recorded. Witches' flying ointment is known by a variety of names, including green ointment, magic salve, or lysanthropic ointment. Today is October 25th, 2022, and I have recorded a few other episodes that I am not finished editing and I haven't uploaded yet, so if things seem a little out of order, it's for that reason. But it is very close to Halloween, so I want to talk about witches' flying ointment. And I think this is a really cool concept that is rooted in actual herbalism. So we're going to talk a little bit about some baneful herbs. Some of the information that I'm going to share with you comes from a book called The Poison Path Herbal, Baneful Herbs, Medicinal Nightshades, and Ritual Entheogens by Kobe Michael. I've mentioned this book before. I talked a little bit, I think, about mugwort, some herb like that, which was mentioned in this book. But now I want to get into witch's flying ointment. But before I do that, I am going to give a little bit of a warning. This warning comes straight from the Poison Path Herbal. Danger. Toxic. Many of the plants discussed within this book are poisonous. If used improperly, they can cause illness and even death. It is important when working with baneful herbs that you take extra precautions such as wearing gloves and protective eye coverings, using tools designated for poison plants, and clearly labeling any dangerous formulas to protect yourself and others. The information in this book can be dangerous in the wrong hands. Please do not use this information to poison an unsuspecting partner or launch any other diabolical schemes. All of the details in this book are for informational purposes only and are not meant to diagnose, prescribe treatment, or go against the advice of your physician. When implementing any of the information or techniques described here, you are doing so at your own risk. Consult with your physician before experimenting with new plants, especially if you are taking any medication, and avoid them if you have a heart condition or you are pregnant. There are many safe and powerful ways to work with these plants without consuming them. Neither the author nor the publisher is responsible for any adverse effects that come from using the information in this book. Before I dive into what flying ointment is, I'm going to give a little bit of background, some general knowledge that you'll need to understand the components of the flying ointment and how it would have been used. The poison path is a branch of occult herbalism that combines entheogenic ritual practice, phytochemistry, and magic. The poison path is not limited to traditions of witchcraft or paganism. It's inherently animistic, but there are no dogmas or institutions that restrict the use of this knowledge. This book, The Poison Path Herbal, is focused on the magical and spiritual uses of baneful herbs, entheogens, and plant spirit allies, as well as their history and mythology. Baneful refers to the ability of a thing to cause harm. So when you hear that an herb is baneful, you know that it is possible that that herb could be toxic or something like that. Because of the possibility of causing harm, baneful things become taboo and gain a sinister reputation. So in this case, these baneful herbs are capable of causing 
causing bodily harm and sometimes death. So you have to be very careful. And theogens are substances that have the ability to generate spiritual experiences and altered consciousness within an individual or even a group. And theogens are known for their ability to open us up to the spirit world through altering consciousness in order to work magic, prophecy, and commune with spirits. Many entheogenic plants such as belladonna, poppy, and datura are also known for their baneful nature. They are powerful botanicals that if taken improperly could cause death. So here we're pointing out that you can use these things to alter your consciousness and thin the veil and commune with spirits and things like that, but they are also very dangerous and they could kill you. So you want to be super careful if this is the type of magic that you're practicing. Entheogenic plants are powerful botanicals that if taken improperly could cause death. And in addition to their poisonous properties, baneful herbs have a naturally dark and dangerous quality about them. Often plants with thorns, carnivorous plants, and plants that grow around places that we associate with the dead are known for their baneful or baleful natures. Baneful herbs with entheogenic properties are also powerfully medicinal, so they're very useful to herbalists who actually know how to use them. Baneful herbs have been used for centuries by virtually every human civilization for their medicinal and spiritual properties. So the poison path is a spiritually based practice that explores the esoteric properties of potentially deadly plants. While many of these potentially deadly plants have entheogenic qualities, it's their poisonous nature that first attracted the author to them. But don't assume that entheogenic plants are the only way of accessing certain states of consciousness. They are just a subcategory or a set of tools and knowledge that can be utilized to enhance your spiritual tradition, but they are not the only way to do that. There are many techniques that exist for entering trance. You can alter perceptions and encourage spiritual experiences that do not require the use of mind-altering substances. These plants are not deities. The plants that belong to the poison path are among many guides and allies that you might meet along the way. Their entheogenic properties are the physical manifestation of the teaching powers that the spirits of these plants possess. Each plant spirit has an individual and complex personality. These are the plant spirit allies. Knowledge of these plants has been kept secret or omitted from the wider magical community out of a desire to be more socially acceptable and distance the community from the drug culture of the 1960s and 70s. When you start working with these plants, you might notice some shared traits. Many of the hexing herbs of European witchcraft derive from the Solanaceae or nightshade family. They are surrounded by superstition and lore. Secret names were often used for these baneful herbs, such as bat's wing or eye of newt. Generally, they weren't actually using bat's wings or the eyes from newts. These were just code names for the actual herbs that they were using. And many of these plants were mythically associated with deities and spirits of the underworld, the night, and magic. For example, Hecate, Circe, Medea, they're all renowned for their knowledge of poisons, potions, and witchcraft. The plants are connected to deities of magic and witchcraft, ancient spirits credited with bringing knowledge to humanity. Many ancient cultures have similar myths about renegade gods coming to earth to gift humanity with some sort of knowledge. Spirits from the wilderness or the underworld emerge at times to school an individual in the arcane arts. Medieval superstition has connected many of these plants with the Christian devil
travel and with evil spirits in general, and a culture of fear and trepidation is now surrounding them. Some of the accounts of witchcraft from the medieval period resulted from hallucinations brought on by the consumption of these herbs. These plants have an innate affinity with the nocturnal world of spirit and the arcane secrets hidden in the earth. But not every plant in this category is a deadly toxin or mind-expanding psychedelic. Some of these plants are aphrodisiacs or stimulants that may be used for ecstatic ritual celebration. Others are sedatives or hypnotics that can be employed for prophetic dreaming or divination, and still others allow us to travel beyond our bodies or summon spirits to our circle. They serve as catalysts of the ars magica, the magical arts, acting as teachers and familiars. In general, a flying ointment is a hallucinogenic ointment said to have been used by witches in the practice of European witchcraft from at least as far back as the early modern period. That's when detailed recipes for these flying ointments were first recorded. Witches' flying ointment is known by a variety of names, including green ointment, magic salve, or lysanthropic ointment. In German, it was hexbeinsalve, which literally means witch salve, or flugsalve, which means flying salve. Latin names included unguentum sabati, or sabbath unguent, or unguentum farellis, unguentum populi, or popular unguent, or unguenta somnifera, sleeping unguent. Ointments were in widespread use as medicinal preparations long before their association with witches and their sabbath meetings. Some of the earliest written recipes come from the Tratula, which is a collection of three 12th century Italian medical texts on women's health that were written in Salerno, Italy. The text is named for the historic figure Trotula of Salerno. She was a female physician who was credited with writing one of the texts. The Trotula text circulated widely throughout medieval Europe. These ointments were used to treat a wide variety of symptoms and their creation was common knowledge. They were originally part of the pharmacopoeia of village herbalists and apothecaries. Ointments containing solanaceous and soporific or sleep-inducing plants were common in pre-modern medicine. Many of them contained medicinal herbs that were known to have entheogenic properties. Their connections to diabolical witchcraft did not begin until the Middle Ages. The lines became blurred between medieval superstition and folklore, the deluded beliefs of the inquisitors, and actual pagan practices of pre-Christian Europe. The idea that individuals used entheogenic ointments as magical catalysts prior to this time period is unlikely. However, pre-existing documentation and archaeological discoveries support the use of entheogenic plants such as henbane, fly agaric, and mandrake for ritual purposes throughout the ancient world. The plants would have been burned as incense or ingested by drinking an infusion of the plant in water or alcohol. The existence of witches' ointment was primarily a subject of debate between prosecutors and defenders in the witch trials themselves. There were those who believed that witches' sabbats were real and that the ointment enabled a witch to fly to these gatherings often attended by the devil. The ointment that witches used for this purpose contained noxious and deadly ingredients, which was considered evidence of their iniquity. At best, these ointments were used by the devil to create delusions of the senses and prey on the weakened minds of those who partook in them. At worst, they were nefarious preparations used by the devil's agents to bewitch the innocent, work maleficia, and transport themselves to the witch's sabbat. Okay, so basically here they're talking about the history of witches' flying ointment and the fact that it started out not as 
as some kind of nefarious witchy thing, but as part of women's health. So this 12th century Italian medical text, the Trotula, which we know was partly written by a female physician, included some of these quote-unquote baneful herbs, and they were used medicinally. But around the Middle Ages, when the Christian church started to really go after people who did not practice traditional Christianity, you know, they labeled everyone pagan or witches or whatever, that's when they started to come up with these crazy ideas that witches were flying on brooms and they were using flying ointment to get to these witchy meetings called sabbats. And that's where the whole thing came from. This didn't come from some actual practice in pre-Christian Europe. Well, it sort of did, but it didn't come from the witches themselves. This is the people who didn't like them claiming that they were doing these things. But let's go on. The other argument was that the witch's sabbat was a delusion induced by the hallucinogenic ingredients in these ointments. Thus, the witch's sabbat did not exist, and the accused were not guilty of crimes of witchcraft. The idea that these experiences were fantasies and visions brought on by these dangerous plants was used by those intellectuals with a more humanistic view to argue the innocence of those accused of witchcraft since they didn't literally meet with the devil. The debate fueled a body of lore surrounding the witch's ointment. Okay, so there were people who believed that witches were actually making an ointment that could really allow them to fly on a broom, and then there were the other people who believed this was just due to some mind-altering substance in the witch's ointment, and there was no actual flying on brooms, and these people were not actually guilty of convening with the devil. It was just the mind-altering substances that made them feel that they were. So this debate fueled a body of lore surrounding the witch's ointment. The majority of writings regarding such an ointment come from inquisitorial texts and those written by learned men interested in the topic. The writings of inquisitors and demonologists largely contributed to the lore of the witch's ointment called Unguentum Sabbati or Unguentum Lamiarum. This served to demonize traditional pagan ritual herbs, as well as flesh out natural healers and rural herbalists. Hildegard von Bingen demonized many of the plants associated with pre-Christian practices in her descriptions of them, among them belladonna and mandrake. The lore perpetuated by the church is the basis for the modern understanding of the witch's flying ointment. Within the deluded superstitions of the witch hunters are grains of truth regarding the use of entheogenic plants by pre-Christian people. So basically, some of the well-known herbalists like Hildegard von Bingen actually demonized a lot of the plants that were associated with pre-Christian practices. So I've mentioned Hildegard von Bingen before in how she wrote a book on herbs and it looks like in her book she really didn't want people using belladonna and mandrake because they were associated with something non-Christian. The earliest surviving documented mention of a person using flying ointment to meet Satan is from the trial testimony of Matiusa di Francesco in 1428. So there was a comprehensive book on this topic called The Witch's Ointment by Thomas Hatstis. Matiusa was tried in Rome and burned at the stake for her supposed, quote, diabolical congregation, end quote. In the Book of Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage, Abraham of Worms, 1362-1458, recounts being given an ointment by an old woman that gave him the ability to fly. In another early reference to flying ointments, Johannes Hartlieb, 1410-1468, in the Book of All Forbidden Arts, Heresy, and Sorcery, published
published in 1475, stated that these ointments were composed by unholden witches by collecting seven herbs on their respective days of the week. So Sunday was borage or borajo officinalis, Monday was honesty lunaria annua, Tuesday vervain or verbena officinalis, Wednesday spurge mercurialis annua, Thursday vetch and thilis barba, and Friday maidenhair fern, adianthum capillus veneris. The seventh herb to be collected on Saturday is omitted, which is interesting, considering that Saturn rules this day. It is likely that the seventh ingredient was a nightshade or other baneful herb. Since all other ingredients are non-psychoactive, the last ingredient would likely have contained a hallucinogenic component. Another early mention of an ointment in connection with witches was the subtlety of things written by Girolamo Cardano in 1550. Cardano's 21-volume work is the first publication where witches and their ointments appear together, so that was in 1550. In Book 18 on Marvels, he lists the ingredients of the flying ointment as fat of children, juice of parsley, aconite, synchrofoil, nightshade, soot. He also outlines the ointment's effect on the psyche, quote, theaters, pleasure gardens, banquets, beautiful ointments, and clothing, handsome young men, kings and magistrates, demons, ravens, prisons, desert wastes, and torments, end quote. In 1545, Andres Laguna, a Spanish physician, botanist, and pharmacologist, gives one of the most reliable records of saporific ointment after testing it on a patient. He describes the ingredients as some of the very coldest and saporific herbs. In his Natural Magic, Giambattista della Porta notes that the witches smear all parts of the body, first rubbing them to make them ruddy and warm and to rarefy whatever had been condensed because of the cold. Then the flesh is relaxed and the pores opened up. They add the fat or oil that is substituted for it so that the power of the juices can penetrate further and become stronger and more active, no doubt. Porta lists the following ingredients for a flying ointment. Wild celery, or hemlock, fat of children, juice of parsley, aconite, cinquefoil, nightshade, soot. Another recipe in the same book offers the following. Water parsnip, common acarum, calamus, cinquefoil, bat's blood, nightshade. Carl Kaiswater, 1854-1895, mixed an ointment based on Porta's recipe and described dreaming of flying in spirals. Flying, shape-shifting, and encountering monstrous creatures and entities were common in descriptions of people's experiences with these ointments. These experiences can be attributed to the mind-altering effects and delirium produced by the effects of tropane alkaloids. The following two recipes are from The Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott, which was first published in 1584. Scott intended his book to be an expose challenging the belief in and existence of witchcraft in an effort to prevent the prosecution of vulnerable people, often poor and aged women. The fat of young children, and seethe it with water in a brazen vessel, reserving the thickest of that which remaineth, boiled in the bottom, which they lay up and keep until occasion serveth the use. They put hereunto apium gravelins, wolfsbane, poplar buds, and soot, water parsnip hemlock, acarus calamus, cinquefoil, a bloud of flittermouse, which is bat's blood, atropa belladonna, and oleum. So that was the old recipe that was first 
published in 1584. The plants mentioned in these medieval flying ointment recipes raise questions about their effectiveness and whether these recipes were used for their alleged purpose. Many of the ingredients listed either do not have any entheogenic properties or are extremely toxic. Plants like poison hemlock and wolfsbane are often listed as ingredients and both are extremely toxic and they're not even hallucinogenic. I would not rub the juice of either of these plants on my skin. Deadly Nightshade is one of the only plants listed that does have hallucinogenic properties as a deliriant. It appears that the recipes that surfaced around the time of the witch craze act only as scare tactics. These recipes all contain practically the same ingredients, including the most deadly plants in Europe, along with bat's blood and the fat of unbaptized children, sounding more like the idea of a witch hunter than someone well-versed in herbalism. Plants like henbane, mandrake, and Datura were rarely used until later. These would have been safer and more effective ingredients as opposed to hemlock and wolfsbane for use in witches' ointment. Henbane figures extensively in the folklore of Germanic peoples and Mandrake's reputation was widespread before even reaching Northern Europe because it was prized as a fertility and love charm. While Datura didn't enter the pharmacopoeia of Northwestern Europe until the 16th and 17th centuries, Henbane would have been a definite option for those knowledge about entheogenic plants. The fact that these plants are not more prominent in medieval flying ointment recipes raises questions about their authenticity as preparation actually used by people believing themselves to be witches to induce trance and practice witchcraft. Okay, so basically, the author here is saying the recipes don't make sense and they seem more likely to be the inventions of people who actually did not like witches. So they just tried to make up the worst sounding concoction that they could, even though it made no practical sense. So actual witches, people who would have identified as herbalists or witches or cunning folk, would not have used these crazy poisonous concoctions because they would have served no purpose. He's also saying that there were other herbs that could have been incorporated in these recipes that would have made them make a lot more sense, but they weren't used. So it just seems like the people who had the ability to record the history were the people who hated witches and just made some crazy stuff up. In the middle of the 20th century, German folklorist Will Erich Puckert, who lived from 1895 to 1969, experimented with an effective dose of henbane, mandrake, and datura. During his experiment, he and two other individuals fell into a deep sleep for 24 hours. Interestingly, they all reported similar experiences during this time. Michael Harner quotes him in Hallucinogens and Shamanism, describing his visions of, quote, wild rides, frenzied dancing, and other weird adventures connected to medieval orgies, end quote. Pukert was subjected to ridicule for mentioning his experiments with these plants at a conference in 1959. Later in life, he allowed a film crew to record his recreation of Porta's recipe. The fullest account of Pukert's experiment is given in Johanna Michaela Jacobson's 2007 PhD dissertation from the University of Pennsylvania called Boundary Breaking and Compliance, Will Eric Pukert in 20th century German Volkskunde. Today, flying ointments and ritual entheogens are making a comeback in the practice of modern witchcraft. They are a multi-purpose tool used for divination, speaking with the dead, traveling to other worlds to retrieve knowledge, and working with the spirit realm. For many years, ritual entheogens were equated with hallucinogenic drugs in the modern neo-pagan community, and knowledge of these plants returned to the shadows. Their lore survived in folk magic and traditional witchcraft circles. These preparations 
are being sought out as a means of achieving altered states of consciousness and inducing trance to connect with deities and nature spirits, practice shape-shifting, and acquire information psychically. Achieving hallucinogenic doses is not the goal here, and with most of these plants, the hallucinogenic dose and toxic dose are precariously close. At safe dosages, these preparations can provide a means for enhancing altered states in combination with other techniques. They relax the body and mind, lowering inhibitions and opening the practitioner up to subtle reality. Here he's basically stating that modern flying ointments are used for medicinal and ritual purposes, but the goal is not to achieve some hallucinogenic dose. Modern flying ointments are meant for spiritual and medicinal purposes, not for recreational, mind-altering, or drug abuse or anything like that. Let's talk a little bit about making a flying ointment. Flying ointments are pretty easy to make in theory, and you can use any basic salve making recipe. Salves are made by infusing oil with dry plant material, then heating the oil along with beeswax to give it a thicker consistency. Vitamin E oil or rosemary essential oil can be added to help with preservation. The author uses grapeseed oil because it already contains vitamin E and is practically scentless, but any vegetable oil could work. You can also take a more traditional root and use rendered pork or goose fat. Other essential oils can be added for aromatherapy or to enhance the action of the ointment. Mugwort essential oil can be added if you plan on using the ointment for divination or to enhance dreaming and produce more vivid experiences if applying the ointment before bed. Clary sage, lavender, rosemary, and spikenard all have the effect of enhancing the mental faculties, dream recall, and mental clarity. This helps with keeping focused and bringing information back from the spirit world. So those were clary sage, lavender, rosemary, and spikenard, and they help with enhancing the mental faculties, they help with dream recall, and mental clarity. Some practitioners will also add additional ingredients for their sympathetic magic. Animal remains can be added to incorporate the power and guidance of the animal spirit. Goose feathers or crow feathers can be burned and the ashes added to increase the power of transvection or soul flight. Powdered toad skin or the shed skins of snakes can be used to create ointments particularly for shape-shifting and for their connection to occult knowledge and cunning craft. When adding animal remains like this, make sure they are finely powdered and only use minute amounts. This addition is sympathetic and larger amounts are not necessary. Soot was a common ingredient listed in medieval flying ointment recipes. Some people theorized that it was to darken the ointment so that the witch could see where it was applied and how much was used. A more scientific explanation suggests that the alkalinity of organic ash helps with the transdermal absorption of alkaloids. So so basically, you know, when they say alkalinity, it's kind of like acidity, but the opposite end of the pH scale. And they're saying adding the ash increases the alkalinity of the mixture and makes it absorb into the skin more easily. Adding ashes of certain woods for their magical correspondence allows for a wide variety of effects. Soot can also be obtained by holding a metal spoon over a candle and scraping off the resulting lamp black, but this process is time consuming. I prefer using 
using the ashes of stems from plants I am using or hardwood ash. I use one teaspoon per cup of oil, adding it to the infused oil while it is still warm, before straining the herbs. By using the ashes of the same plant, you are effectively creating an energetically whole ointment like a spagyric tincture. When infusing the oil, it is important to use heat because the water-soluble alkaloids do not extract as readily into oil as they do into water or alcohol. A small amount of vodka can be poured over the dry plant material before infusing. This helps break down the cell walls of the plant and makes the extraction process more efficient. The author uses a double boiler method to warm the oil by filling a slow cooker with a couple inches of water, placing a glass jar containing the oil infusion into the water, and letting it sit for four to six hours. He allows the oil to infuse naturally, leaving it for an additional two to four weeks, taking advantage of both heat and time. The oil is kept in a warm and dark place. After this period, the oil is strained and any remaining oil is carefully pressed from the plant matter. So here's a recipe. You need 28 grams of dried plant material for 250 milliliters of oil, which is approximately a 1 to 10 ratio. Here's how you make the flying ointment. You need vodka, 28 grams or 1 ounce of Atropa belladonna, 250 milliliters of vegetable oil, 1 teaspoon of wood or plant ashes, 4 tablespoons of beeswax or carnauba wax, and then some essential oils. Pour about 1 shot of vodka over the dry plant material and mix the oil with the plant material. Infuse this mixture in a saucepan over low heat for 4-6 to six hours. Optionally, you can leave this to infuse at room temperature for 2-4 to four weeks. Then strain the oil into a mason jar and add 1 teaspoon of ash and 4 tablespoons of beeswax or carnauba wax. Place the jar in a saucepan of water that reaches about halfway up the jar. Heat it on medium-high, stirring occasionally until all the wax is melted. More beeswax or oil can be added to adjust the consistency to your liking. Add any additional oils and pour them into containers. This batch of oil can be used to make 8 1-ounce jars containing 2 tablespoons of infused oil and 1 to 2 teaspoons of beeswax. Each 1-ounce tin would contain the equivalent of 3.5 grams of plant material. Now let's get into how to use the ointment. Let's talk about your mindset and the setting. So you should avoid caffeine, nicotine, greasy foods, and meat for up to 24 hours prior to using the ointment. Caffeine and nicotine can inhibit the effects of tropane alkaloids. Greasy foods that are high in fat also prevent the absorption of tropane alkaloids. Fasting for 24 hours beforehand is also beneficial and intensifies the effects. Some practitioners will fast and partake in a plant diet prior to ritual application of the ointment. This diet consists of taking microdoses of the entheogen to form a connection with its spirit. This can also be achieved using flower essences and can be begun 7 to 10 days before the ritual, accompanied by fasting and abstinence from sex and alcohol. The single most important aspect of preparation when using these plants for magical purposes is to do so with a ritual mindset, ritualizing the application of the ointment and creating an environment that is conducive to magical practice. Chanting and drumming is beneficial to begin altering consciousness before the effects of the entheogen kick in. The ideal setting is outdoors, especially in the woods where spirits roam freely. However, while being outdoors provides an intense experience, 
experience, it isn't always safe. Darkness enhances the effects of the experience and the manifestation of visions. If possible, having another person act as a watcher is beneficial. When you are engrossed in the effects of tropane alkaloids, you can forget that you are under the influence of an entheogen. If performing a specific ritual, prepare the space and arrange the altar with the appropriate tools prior to applying the ointment so that there are no distractions. When you are ready to apply the ointment, massage the area with your hands first to get the blood flowing to the area and to open the pores. Apply one teaspoon at a time after doing an initial patch test to ensure there are no skin sensitivities. Apply the ointment to the soles of the feet, palms of the hand, forehead, and back of the neck and to one or several pulse points such as temples, wrists, and the back of the knees. The pulse points are closer to major arteries and the palms and soles of the feet are porous which enhances absorption. Applying the ointment over a wider surface area increases the absorption of the alkaloid. Okay, there is more that I want to share about witches flying ointment. I've talked a lot about the potential toxicity of the active ingredients and how you need to be very, very careful. But there's just more to the history and also to the spirituality of it. So I do want to talk more about bodily flight versus flight in spirit, body in coma and riding on beasts, the alleged sexual element in the application of witches flying ointment, the possible opiate components. And I do want to get into a little more of the history and then how flying ointments are viewed in pop culture today. But this episode has already taken so long that I think it would make more sense to put all of that other information in a separate episode, so there will be a part two. And I thank you very, very much for listening to Path of a Green Witch podcast. I also want to thank the supporters of Path of a Green Witch podcast. I truly love you guys. You are so amazing. You have no idea how your support helps me tremendously. Thank you so very, very much. This special thank Thank you goes to Nicole Mims, Tori Postgol, Jamie L. Spencer, Jason Holt, Ray, and John Shields. I cannot thank you enough. I really appreciate your support. If you'd like to become a supporter of Path of a Green Witch podcast, just check the link in the description box below. Thank you so much for listening to Path of a Green Witch podcast.